This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. I think Nick Fury just hijacked our summer vacation. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, dude? Nothing much. Kinda crazy that we've reached the last of the MCU. It is. I don't quite believe it. I think I've, I think we started in like June last year, or was it maybe even earlier? Uh, with Iron Man when I... Whenever Godzilla came out. Yeah, whenever... whenever uh, I've kind of blocked that movie out. Uh, yeah, whenever that movie came out. But yeah, this has been a crazy, crazy long journey. Um, a lot of fun, though. But uh, we are finally about to wrap it up with, you know, finishing up the MCU with uh, Spider-Man Far From Home, or at least until uh, until Black Widow comes out on home video. Then we'll be right back in it. So yeah, uh, and before we begin our discussion on that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, take a moment to head over to iTunes and uh, rate and review us and subscribe. Uh, just leaving a you know, short five-star review would be very helpful, help other people find us, and we'd be very appreciative. And also, uh, like us on Facebook while you're at it. Uh, you can keep up to date with all these episodes and uh, leave feedback that could be read on the show. And uh, speaking of said feedback, I asked on Facebook uh, what our listeners thought about uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. And uh, Elliot said, I loved it. Becky said, reminded me of an 80s teen movie, which I guess is what the people want. It felt a little too dismissive of the snap. Hannah said, it was one of the two best Marvel movies. The other obviously being Spider-Man Homecoming. Is that obvious? I don't know about that. Uh, Samuel said, good and fun movie. Gotta admit, I was a little skeptical at first. I wasn't sure what they were doing with Mysterio, and it felt too much like a jokey teen movie in the first act. I agree with Becky that it was too dismissive of the snap and made the snap into a joke. But in the end, I still liked it a lot, and I liked Mysterio a lot too. I think I liked it more than Homecoming. Uh, Josh Berkey from the Victims and Villains podcast said, uh, holds one of the best villains in the MCU. Drew Dodgen from the Cellcast said, about what I would expect from a Mysterio story. Love all the callbacks to previous movies, and I like the closure it brings for Peter after Endgame. And uh, moving into the behind the behind the scenes story of this film, uh, shortly before the release of Homecoming, it was confirmed that Marvel and Sony would continue working together to make a sequel. So Sony had even picked out the uh, the sequel's summer of 2019 release date before the first film had even come out. The writing team of Chris McKenna and Eric Summers uh, returned from Homecoming uh, to write the sequel. They had also done work on Ant Man and the Wasp. Um, and John Watts also uh, returned from the first one to direct, although he doesn't get a screen uh, screenwriting credit this time. You know, people were talking about how this felt dismissive of the snap. And th th there is a little bit of weirdness with this whole Sony Marvel partnership. <laughs> you know, just a few months back, you know, it all blew up and then all kind of came together again nicely. But with these release dates, like if Marvel had Spider-Man, this movie would not exist in the way it does. You know, it definitely would not have been released at the time it was, but Sony, Sony just wants to get the, you know, these movies out very regularly. So that, so Marvel kind of has to work within whatever release date Sony picks. And it kind of created a problem with it without, with Endgame because trailers for Spider-Man far from home, you know, Spider-Man, a character who was dusted in, End, in, uh, in infinity war, you know, trailers were, were coming out, showing him all alive and happy before Endgame had even come out. So like, it was like you could tell there was that bit of tension between, you know, the, the priorities of storytelling and just Sony wanting to get their movie out. Yeah. For the film's cast, uh, pretty much every major cast member from Spider-Man Homecoming uh, came over for Far From Home. There were only a handful of, of 
more major characters. Uh, uh, Remy He plays Brad Davis, um, a comedian and voice actor. J.B. Smoove was cast as the teacher Julius Dell. And apparently this was after um, the writers and, and John Watts really liked his performance in an, uh, a commercial short film that was used to promote Homecoming. <laughs> I feel like uh, the stakes just got a lot higher for every promotional uh, piece of material, at least for the actors in it. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal as Quentin Beck, which is actually like a funny bit of casting considering there was a time where he was up to play him uh, in the, the Raimi Spider-Man film. So he found his way into the franchise. Yeah, they were gonna, they were possibly going to recast Tobey Maguire uh, after he got injured. Was it for Spider-Man 3, was it? Or Spider-Man 2? Spider-Man 2. He had a... Because then everybody was convinced that when he tries to climb and falls down and oh. hurts his back, and he's like, oh, my back was like some sort of uh, meta reference. So uh, Far, Far From Home was shot in the summer of 2018. Uh, the studio filming was done in London, but they also shot in New York, Venice, and Prague, as well as various locations in and around London and England. Um, Matthew J. Lloyd, who had shot a Watts film Cop Car, was hired as the uh, director of photography. Uh, I forget the guy he replaced from the first film. Um, but he also has a, a pretty extensive history of Marvel. He was the DP on the first season of Daredevil, as well as The Defenders, and he also does a lot of additional photography on Ragnarok and Captain Marvel, so... For the film's post-production, most of it just has to do with uh, the various uh, different special effects companies that worked on this film just because of how extensive the visual effects were here. Um, the biggest like notable piece of news, or I guess info about the, the post-production, was just the way they handled the post-credit scene with uh, J.K. Simmons reprising his role as J. Jonah Jameson. Apparently, uh, Watts did not approach Simmons until very very late in the game as he didn't want it getting out and while he knew that like there was a chance he wouldn't uh reprise his role um whether he would or not determined whether they like it was going to be jameson who broke the news because he said if we can't get him then i don't want to do this we'll find some other way to do it and uh simmons actually called uh Raimi to get his blessing before accepting the role oh that's sweet yeah that post-credit scene was like one of the top two most joyous moment, like kind of reveal moments. And like between that and uh, seeing Bruce Willis at the end of Split, kind of yep. those just moments you will never forget in the theater. Yep, it was insane. I, I I was in disbelief. Oh gosh, what a what a nice nice little bit of little moment in the theater. Um, but anyway, so yeah, he agreed to do it. It was all kept incredibly quiet. Um, like they, it was obvious, like, a, obviously just a little skeleton crew and everything. So that is, I feel like that was handled probably pretty similarly to the way the, the Fury reveal at the end of Iron Man. Uh, Michael Giacchino returned to do the score. Um, and of course it, it opens with, uh, I will always love you. It's just a, <laughs> a beautiful touch. Um. Far From Home had its premiere at the TCL Chinese Theater on June 26, 2019, and then had its worldwide release uh, on July 2nd. Uh, so real quick, um, the thing that people were mentioning about how they felt this film uh, didn't properly didn't properly de- either honor the snap or at least was too glib about it. <laughs> Is that something that bothers you? How do you feel about you know this film coming so soon off of Endgame and just kind of making a joke about the snap and all that? Uh, I like 
the idea of making a joke about it in that initial bit, I am 100% fine with. Like, I, I mean, there's, there's only so much, you know, everybody who died came back. There's only so much you can do with that. I don't mind that it was kind of used as a bit. You know, it's it's following homecoming. I feel like that's obviously what they're gonna do. And the actual joke itself, I I think it's hilarious. Like the little, the the recording of like the band returning right in the middle of the basketball game. Like I think that's genuinely funny. The idea of them having to like retake the year and the age difference and stuff. I thought all of that worked. So, you know, making light of it was not at all an issue for me. My issue was, and it was weird, it, I didn't notice it. Like, this idea hadn't even crossed my mind until watching it now. It was just how the movie doesn't deal with the state of the... Like, the, the it kind of removed the option to deal with what the world looks like. It removed that as an option for any future films because this movie just pretty definitively says everything recovered in about a couple months <laughs> and the world might as well be what it was before. Um, Cause for some reason that just, that didn't cross my mind, but thinking about it now, I was like, man, that, you know, like a school trips, Venice looks fine. Probably like all of these places look fine. We've got these festivals again that it, it, you know, thinking about five years, you know, of, of half the population being gone and all of those, the, just the slow panning shots from Endgame of, you know, abandoned stadiums and the world just looking like it's in complete disarray. And now this is this takes place very shortly. Um, I think it re- it really is only a few months. I think after after Endgame, everything looks like a okay, and that that is what bothers me more than anything is. The I don't mind using the snap as a joke, but to dismiss it entirely and not even fold that into, like just the way the world looks like now is if it, it feels weird. And I think that's kind of evidence of the fact that I think if Marvel had had their way, they would have told pretty much the same story, but just put it back like a year, maybe two years, so you could. Because I, I think having it so close to Endgame also kind of makes the the whole thing of Peter's so exhausted he just needs a break. That kind of feels weird because it feels like wait you just got back. Um, so I feel like the story itself feels like it should have been set a year, two years, you know, after the snap. But Sony wants their movie kind of thing. Um, so it's kind of one of those just studio issues that you kind of wish didn't exist, but kind of i I don't because i think the fact is that this film within itself works well enough but as you said looking at the larger mcu you can you you can see the seams um but yeah going going back to that i think it is it the treatment of the snap fits perfectly within the space that john watts had set up for spider-man in the mcu with homecoming that very fun 80s high school tone that this film really continues in like that is the way that it's faithful to this film and i think i think that's important that each film within the mcu you know maintains its own aesthetic and its own tone like if we go to guardians of the galaxy they're gonna treat you know the the snap and and all of that and thor and the rest of the galaxy they're gonna treat it very differently than say endgame did like i think i think that's part of the 
the greatness of the MCU is that you can have, you know, various angles looking at it. And this is just the goofy high school angle. And yeah, they would create this super ta- tacky, um, your tribute video with the boom mic and the blurry pics of vision and Getty images. And I just, love that the Getty images cracks me up. And yeah. all of like the stock photos from previous films, like that Time magazine cover from the first Iron Man. And, uh, oh, it's introducing so Hunky Brad. I I love that whole little bit of like the the high school newsroom. I think all of that is pretty hilarious. Then uh, one of my favorite jokes from that is you like when he's like thanks to so and so for use or for putting together this inspiring video and you just hear the blah 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 blah. <laughs> I love how much a Betty hates her co-star. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I think we're moving out of that into uh, moving into just the whole idea of the road trip movie or in this case kind of the school trip going to going far from home you know pulling peter out of his element how do you think that all of the that entire the, building this this sequel around a road trip how do you think that works and do you think it works with the character and all of that i think it's a bit spotty i i don't dislike the idea i think the idea is fun i know a lot of people are sad that like we we still haven't gotten like the conventional new york slinging webs through skyscrapers kind of spider-man yet it's all been very small very contained um that's not really an issue of mine like i we 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 have like five movies of that so i'm fine Uh to do something else um i like the idea of the road trip and i think there's a lot of fun to be had on it Um, there's a lot of sequences that i like a lot i think Something that I that I realized a lot during this viewing was just I want to see this movie, but not as a, like I want to see John Watts just make this as a regular high school teen comedy and not have the burden of like these big superhero stakes and supervillains and fu- An like Avengers that level of. threat. <laughs> exactly, like because whenever this movie is just being fun and goofy. Um, and focusing on like this high school aspect, I have a lot of fun with it. The the airplane montage, I think is hilarious. Like I really like all of all of that bit. Um, you know, him trying to sit with her. The there's a lot of funny uh, funny bits with the the editing. Like you know, like him offering MJ the the dual um, headphone adapter. Yeah, the headphone little, adapter. Little, just little and then, touches like that are so adorable. Yeah, and. The the initial, the bit of like the turbulence and Ned grabs her hand and just that those those looks at each other. There's so much like fun little quirky stupid things happening that's constantly making me laugh. Um, that I I like a lot and just watch it. Like I I really like road trip movies too. There's something about it that just it's fun, feeling like you're watching characters go through some sort of journey and. All, like visiting all the different locations travel movies are just really fun to me and so i like that a lot as well here it's just whenever you take all of those things and then place the burden of like a super villain and a more conventional like it feels like there's two different kinds of narratives that are fighting to work within the same movie and the one is just is that very like the normal like road trip kind of movie where it has some sense of momentum, but like the movie is just kind of coasting, going from place to place and having fun without like, obviously there's a destination, but it's not like 
a lot of the time there's not this huge build. Um, and that, that kind of movie is trying to exist in the same movie as like the, we've got this world ending threat. We've got this third act that we're having to build to. Yeah. There's a point in the middle, like probably like right in the middle of the film where we win, you know, the elements are destroyed. You know, everyone's happy. We're going for a drink. It's like it, that. The other thing you talk about momentum, it really does the, the conflicts. Like they start, they stop, they start, they stop. Like it's, they're very kind of isolated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, personally, I actually think the road trip element actually works really well within the idea. You know, it's that classic uh, Peter Parker struggle of trying to maintain, you know, his secret identity and keep up, you know, keep his personal life going and, you know, have a personal life, have a girlfriend, um, you know, maintain his friendships, do his schoolwork while also constantly being called, you know, to be a hero. In this case, it's, it's so much bigger than his usual thing where now it's like the event, you know, end game happened. You know, the Avengers don't really exist anymore and Iron Man's gone. And so uh, <laughs> Nick Fury, you know, Captain America's gone. So Nick Fury has to call this kid because, you know, he's also has no information. Like it, the world is out of sorts. And so even though all Peter wants to do is just, you know, be a kid, the, the responsibility it keeps calling him. So that I think is a very Spider-Man thing and setting that, Within this road trip, I think I think does pretty well. I, I okay. I, I do want to talk about Spider-Man's arc in this film, and I think kind of an issue that I'm starting to have with these two Watts Spider-Man films. I, I don't know if it's his fault or the writers, but I I think he really understands you know the core conflict of Spider-Man, that conflict between superhero and citizen, you know, ordinary citizen life. Um, because you know that was kind of the crux of both of these films, and he really does a great job. Like every, I think every good Spider-Man movie really beats him up and makes him miserable. And I think he does a good job of that. In the first in the first film, Homecoming, there are several sequences that are just painful to watch and, and are incredibly you know, difficult. And and uh, you know Tom Holland is just radiating pain. And they do the same thing here, like. When he climbs up out of out of under the train with his bloody hand, like. They do a great job of just, you know, beating the kid down. But I also feel like there's an element of not, you know, not truly being able to have the courage of their convictions in this in this kind of story. Um, we talked about this in Spider-Man in Homecoming, where when he he made his big choice in the end to not become an Avenger, it didn't feel quite earned, didn't feel like that was what that didn't seem like he was he was being driven by the same motivations as a character that had driven him throughout the rest of the film. It felt just kind of arbitrary, and also it felt like he got off kind of easy for you know for 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 some of the things he had done to his friends and his classmates. And I feel like and it's not the same here, but I think that there's an element of the entire film is about choosing. You know, Nick Fury keeps coming to him. You got to choose, dude. What you? What are you? You're gonna be a hero. Or you're gonna be a kid. And he the whole time. He kind of has to coast along, you know. Nick Fury hijacks the road trip, so he, so Nick Fury is literally taking him where he wants him to be. But he, you know, but he, Peter's own choices generally are to avoid responsibility, and we kind of have that that you know moment of conflict where he gets hit by a train and he has that nice, actually really really sweet conversation with Happy. But I feel like. The film doesn't entirely know whether like is what the film is saying is the film saying, yes, Peter needs to step up. He needs to fill Iron Man's shoes. He needs to be an Avenger. Nick Fury, you know, he needs to be there for Nick Fury. 
and you know step up and step into the world stage or is it saying no peter's just a kid and nick fury you know isn't isn't really right to expect this much of him and he actually belongs in new york because i feel like it's trying to say kind of both because you have happy saying you know i don't think tony would have done what he would what he did if he didn't know you were going to be here and then at the end he's also say, telling nick fury you know leave him alone he'll call you as if he's telling off nick fury for being for for you know imposing on the kid like is is that a con is that a kind of a conflict you feel as well it is i feel like the movie doesn't pick an answer itself and i you know i don't think it has to be as binary as like either peter is right or fury is right or you know like which one and i and i feel like somebody hearing what you just said would be like well of course it doesn't have to be one of these two extremes there could be nuance in the middle and i would say yes but i don't think that this movie finds that nuance in the middle it feels like it casually agrees with both and moves on and like it's it's very clearly setting up these options and it's setting up this um these opposing um forces in his life but then it kind of it i don't know we we have that moment with with happy on the jet and he's like like you you couldn't like you couldn't um you're not iron man yeah you're not iron man Man. tony was barely like tony had his own problems you could never really do this but like this is the situation yada 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 and i feel like after that moment the movie just stops even really considering that idea up until the other he'll call you a moment yeah which and it that just and that feels almost more like a not a, not a a play just for laughs but it that feels way too fluffy to be any anything too thematically significant to me like it it's definitely the movie saying like oh peter needs a break and this and that but it it still doesn't feel like a statement in and of itself like a as if the movie itself has come down on on any side on this issue. And am I correct in saying like, like the central Spider-Man conflict? I think in pretty much all the movies is Spider-Man makes the choice. You know, he struggles, and he finally, in the end, he makes the choice for a responsibility, and then then comes the cost and the sacrifice. Like it's like an internal cycle of choice and and choice and sacrifice. I feel like the, these two films. Sure, he didn't get Liz in the end of Homecoming, but he's still at least he's still uh on everyone welcomes him back onto the science tech decathlon thing, and you know everyone's still you know he Ned's still his friend like, and even she's even even Liz is kind of nice to him after he stood her up like, it felt like they it didn't really fully land the consequences of his choice to to choose responsibility, and I feel like the same thing is even a little worse here because you know the entire film is like. I, you know, I want MJ, but uh, you know, Peter's like, I want MJ, and Nick Fury's like, no, you stupid child, we have a war to fight, and in the end, he chooses the war, but he also gets the girl, and it's like, and I, I, I I'm not saying that all stories of this type have to end in misery and sacrifice, and the good guy can never get the girl, but I feel like in this, the way, I feel like this film was setting up a classic Spider-Man you know, story arc and theme, but it kind of just, as you said, it kind of forgets about that going to the third act. And we just get a very traditional happy ending where the whole question of, 
you know, the ch- responsibility and making a choice and stepping up and the, the cost that, and the very real cost that Peter himself was, you know, Peter was aware that if I choose to be Spider-Man, there's going to be costs to my personal life. And he was avoiding that the entire time, but that he chooses to be Spider-Man and there are no costs to his personal life until the post credits. But that's, that's after the movie. I don't remember how much we brought up the Raimi Spider-Man in the homecoming episode. I think definitely on the, on the topic of like the, the cost um, of wearing the mask and being Spider-Man. Um, and I feel like I can't help but compare any future Spider-Man movies to, to those first two. Mm-hmm. And I think this movie follows a similar like oh, pattern, it, it, not similar execution, but similar pattern. Like, you know, choosing to be a superhero in the first one like he's not he doesn't end up with a girl he doesn't get the girl in the first one and then he's rewarded with the relationship at the end of the second like both of them do that it's just it feels so much more earned in the Raimi ones just because of like he is that that whole movie or both of those movies are just constantly wrestling with the with you know, the famous Spider-Man line with great power comes great responsibility. That's what drives almost every moment of those and he's just put through the ringer. He's and, and beyond just physically, it's like thinking about Spider-Man 2, just the moments of him coming back to his like decrepit apartment and and sitting down on his bed and seeing like the state of his life, you know, all everything that he could do with his power for personal gain and yet this is his life because of what he's decided to do with it like moments like that those dream conversations with uncle ben (sighs) yeah like you you feel the weight of that on him like those movies feel so personal and so emotional and there's there's so much dramatic conflict in it and so whenever he is rewarded like whenever mary jane comes to him at the end which is an adorable moment. Yeah. You and you get to like you celebrate because it just feels so earned. It is that sigh of relief. But these movies are so light and so fluffy and and not willing to to be as rough as they need to be that whenever that happens it's like I don't sense any sort of change. I don't feel that sigh of relief. I don't feel like, you know, we finally made it to the end and now we can celebrate something earned like this. It's like ah I mean, yeah, I guess this is where it was headed. Well, I want to be careful. I don't know if you're saying this, but for me, I am not saying that a Spider-Man film has to be the miserable, you know, waltz of, you know, destruction and, you know, chaos in your personal life that the Raimi films were. These films are choosing to, they're 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 very consciously choosing to be these fun, glib, um, you know, high school films. I think that's great. But I I, I, I don't know if I'm... I'm speaking for myself, but I might also be speaking for you and say that the problem is not the choice of tone, but rather that they want, they really, really want to dabble in that Raimi. And even though what Webb did with the Amazing Spider-Man films, they want to dabble in that classic misery and pain, but only just put a finger in it. Yes, that I, I agree 100% with that. Because there are different Spider-Man stories that I love that are very much like the fun high school romp with a superhero. Like as the lead like those are i i do enjoy that but I, i'm i'm saying more of what you just clarified in that this movie is presenting peter as if he's gone through something similar and like just the way it's structured i mean like i said it feels 
similar, you know, like because because the second film in both trilogies deal with with him wanting to deny a level of responsibility, um, and it just if like you said, if you're going to dabble in that, it can't be a, a dabble in it either. Like deal with the cost of being a hero or just enjoy your light tone. Like you you don't have to do both. I just I do wish it would pick a lane and just really perfect that as opposed to mm-hmm. to being as fun as it is while also like tr- really trying to convince me that that Peter has it rough because like in the scene with he with he and Happy and Peter is just I, I love all three of his of his films his, uh, his bloody eye is so painful to look at those those red oh it, he looks like he's just been through it that that moment feels very very brutal like emotionally like he's just had it and in isolation i think that scene is amazing it's just it doesn't quite feel like the movie has built to that scene yeah i feel like watts has the chops to play in either lane i just i don't think he he just can't do both at the same time like because when the film is miserable i think it's genuine and Tom Holland, as I said before, you know, he's so good at being in pain and being sad and being this sad little puppy that you just want to cuddle and hug just to make it all better for him. And I think both of those are excellent, which I think, which is why I, I can never hate this film or even dislike it. I like this film a lot. It's I do a too. blast to watch and I cry when it wants me to cry, but it kind of like uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp. At the end, when you try to think on the story, you're like, "Wait, what was the story? What, what, what was the you know, what was the theme? What were you trying to say to me? I I had a great time with you, but what's underneath? And it it just doesn't feel completely coherent. Let's just get into that set that all that fun that the film has. Um, I do like the way it uses locations. You know, going to Venice, going to Prague. I think it makes a really good use of the settings and just just being with the characters and even even the I have my issues with uh, Mr. Dell, but even still, I kind of always chuckle when he and uh, Martin Starr are going at it. Or just, I feel like this film, even more so than the previous film, kind of dips too far into sketch comedy. Like there are moments where it just feels like, you know, they're just kind of standing there riffing off each other, and you know, they left the camera running. And yeah, I, I've I've had. I have that same kind of issue here and to bring up Ant-Man and the Wasp again. There are several moments here that reminded me of of my issues with like the FBI agent and that one where it's like in another movie this might be funny, but and I've said this a million times like you know part of part of the burden of of being in a franchise is we've established a level of of reality and I'm just I'm trying to think of some of these bits whether it's I mean the the teacher i really loved uh star in the first one and i yeah. like him here but like in the first one he was used just briefly enough and there was he felt just real enough like the furthest they went with him was you know like we can't lose another student which Not was again. the best joke in the mcu <laughs> yes, I, I, that is hilarious but it's the one time they let themselves go a little bit far with the humor and it works because it was used sparringly but here it, like it's just it's too often like it it's not just a moment in the humor it just sometimes it feels like it is the humor which is why I just I want wants to be able to make this kind of movie free from a franchise and free from like the expectations of what these movies have to do 
because I, I am I'm imagining like those scenes or those kind of people existing in Iron Man one, and it it doesn't work. Like these are two separate realities, and like the the teachers are so they're so like absurdly idiotic. Like, just going along with every new deal. Like, you know, your bus driver won't say a word to you. You have very little idea of, like, why any of this is happening. And it's just constantly roping these kids around the world. Like, in any normal reality, none of this gets half as far as it does. Um, even in, in the reality of the, the earlier MCU films, this this just doesn't get this far. It's 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 going, I don't know. Like, like I said, it works within the context of this one film. Um, but it it's still like I, I agree with what you said. It, it just feels like sketch comedy at times. And speaking of humor that doesn't work, what happened with John Favreau in those final scenes, like in the in the uh, the the Tower of London Jewel Vault? Like, oh, I I love John Favreau. He's obviously a decent actor, but like, is he unable to play scared? I don't. That that whole scene to me is really cringe like that i thought we were just admitting stuff like oh <laughs> this kind of hurts um yeah i don't i feel like you know i don't know how how much of a dramatic actor he is like i know i haven't seen like a lot of his roles outside of the mcu um i don't know if there are moments of drama that he does super well in and something like chef but but yeah he feels he feels like John Ra- John Favreau having fun on set, like trying to play those emotions as opposed to like a character. And uh, moving on to some positives, I one thing I think that really works pretty much consistently throughout the film is the the budding relationship between uh, Peter and MJ. Um, I know like a lot of people didn't like uh, Zendaya's performance in the first film. I kind of like just how ridiculous she was. I, like the I, middle finger gif is still one of the greatest things ever. Yeah, I feel like the film. I feel like the film was kind of in on the joke about her character that she was just kind of pathetic, but you know, but hiding it behind you know this whole facade of being so much cooler. And I, I really like that. Um, and in this film, they they they, they toned it down a lot. You know, she really underplays her reactions and like. I feel what it is. It's like she doesn't understand, you know, basic human interactions. So she kind of maintains the superior aloofness, to, you know, to ma- it maintain control. Like if, you know, you can't judge me for being the dork I am if I'm just better, you know, if I just sit here and act like I'm better than you. So she just kind of like sits, you know, sits up there and just looks down on all the world. But it's, it's more, it's actually a defense mechanism against, you know, the actual vulnerability of being your incredibly awkward, shy person. And just watching her, her performance as she kind of slowly opens up to Peter and you, I think they have the, the, just their kind of budding chemistry. I think it's, it's really wonderful. That was one of my favorite aspects of this movie. Uh, you know, because I had no issue with her in the first one. I actually like, like you, I liked, I liked the character. I like what they did with her. And I really liked getting to see her move out of like the side character into like the main character slot um and have her see her come into her own more she's just a lot of fun to watch and i feel like all of all of the bits of humor with her for me they all land like i love you know her and the word bow it's just like that <laughs> i was born to say this word it's it's just that feels like it feels 
heightened enough to like work in this comic book movie but like i don't know i think there's a real enough character there to to ground her and to make her sympathetic like he said like this is a defense mechanism she is just this this shy person and the way she she plays it like because it's it's her having to play a character who is putting on an act and i think she does that really well and she's never annoying about it she's pretty like despite being like that kind of like fake edgy person i feel like that usually comes across as really obnoxious in movies but she never stops being likable to me that's the thing that i think makes the character work so well uh, and be different from other like similar characters that just come across as more cringe and annoying um is the movie peppers in does a really good job at peppering in um those moments of like awkward vulnerability for her like you know and she's like uh like want to go in on a pair you know like we'll sit together and they just they kind of stand there and her hands are constantly tell. moving just fiddling with things yeah and like her eyes are constantly just like avoiding eye contact moving all around the room like she she feel she just seems like a genuinely awkward real person and uh yeah i i liked to see uh, a character who isn't like tony or ned interact with peter more um so yeah i i think their relationship is really solid i just realized that both of the kind of romantic scenes are on bridges which is kind of cool but Maybe all three of them. Yeah, all three of them. The first interaction they have in a in in Venice, they're like walking over a bridge, and then in Prague they're on a bridge, and in London they're on a bridge. It's poetry. Uh, but like the, the 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 second one in Prague, I think is a really lovely scene where she's like, you know, uh, you know uh, Susan thinks you're a male escort. <laughs> I'm not a male escort. Well, then you're Spider Man, and he, which and then he's like, I messed up. I am Spider Man. You're serious? Because I was only like 60, you know, 67% sure. And I, I, th- I think the, you know, her and Tom Holland's chemistry is so good that they make us forget that the, that this romance re- literally came out of thin air. Like we just start the movie and he's madly in love with with uh, her despite you know not being at all in the first film, which is kind of funny, but it, hey, it works. So. I was going to say, like, I was thinking about that, like the first time watching whenever his first conversation with Ned is about that. I was like, wait you're not gonna like build towards this you're just introducing this idea i don't know why but i never once questioned it beyond that i was like okay yeah sure fine like i guess all of this works because i can i can retroactively buy completely that she liked him in homecoming you know and she she was was in love with him (laughs) yeah like she she was putting putting on that whole like standoffish thing like that that makes complete sense. Um, and and I get just like, I think a lot of it is just Holland's performance and how like real to teenagers it all feels. But like once it starts happening, like, okay, yeah, I, I'm cool with all of this. It's weird that like, I'm I'm not needing any more work to be done. Like this, this is all working fine somehow. Which brings us, I think, to... Another fan, you know, a fantastic addition to the MCU, uh, with uh, you know Jake Gyllenhaal's Mysterio, and I mean we should we should have all known the sense it is Jake Gyllenhaal, but uh, he's absolutely fantastic as this character. Every, like every second he's on screen, he's completely owning the movie. It just 
there are so many layers going on both with his performance and just the way he's integrated into the story. Um, uh, and I love that, you know, we all, I guess, you know, quote unquote, knew Mysterio was the villain of the film because he's a villain in the comics. But I, I love the way the way he's integrated the film as a hero and the entire time going, you just don't know. And I think after a while, you're kind of hoping that he stays a good guy because Jake Gyllenhaal is just so charming. And it's, it's almost like a disappointment when he reveals that he's the bad guy. He is one of the greatest working actors. Like, he is freaking phenomenal. And he was definitely the thing that I was most excited about, like, coming into this. is like, holy crap, like, this guy is, you know, I'm, I'm coming off of, like, Nightcrawler and Zodiac and Prisoners are, like, some of, become some of my favorite movies of all time over the past, like, two or three years. And so I'm, I'm all aboard the Gyllenhaal train and seeing a seeing him in the trailers it's like what are what are they going to do with him you know like you don't just get Gyllenhaal to have him play like any any other person and I well, feel well like, the oh, MCU does but most of the movies well, won't. yeah but come on you can't do it this time and so I think like everybody else though it took at, maybe two scenes and i was like oh please don't be the bad guy <laughs> you like i love this character so much one of my favorite just little bits because because like it's what i feel like when we think of like what amazing acting is we think of those huge big dramatic moments but i think all it takes is to watch little performances like this to remind us of like how much beyond that it is like moments of whenever you know he's like oh and uh and quentin will and it's like hey my name is mysterio and he just kind of gives him that look i love that so much that that bit there's something about that little moment and i knew right then because i i remember i remember the specific thought i had there i was like i am i am now going to be pissed if he's the villain like <laughs> i am already 100 percent like barely introduced to this character and i love him and i he better not be the bad guy um yeah, like moments like that, their conversation up on the roof. And he's like, part of me just wants to tell you to go and have fun with your friends and forget all of this. And like, he's just, he just feels so likable. And what he, like him kind of arguing, again, like arguing with Fury on behalf of Peter of like, he's probably upset that you just kidnapped him and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, this He yeah, is so, so perfect at manipulating teenagers. <laughs> yeah. Don't ever apologize to be the smartest person in the room. <laughs> And uh, and reading, uh, there was a, a quote I found from him uh, whenever he was uh, talking about the role. And he's like, I, I wanted to play him as the hero as sincerely as possible. Like, I, I, he was just essentially saying, like, I wanted there to be no doubt that this guy was just genuine. Like, he was just this good of a guy. And, and the script is layered enough to where you can... On second view, you can see all the layers of deception and manipulation that he's playing. Exactly, because it is one of those, like, too-good-to-be-true things. Like, it feels like every response he's given, um, everything feels tailored to be like, this is what the greatest guy ever would say right now. And Because he's right reading off of a script. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and in the moment, I, th I think this is the best singular piece of acting in the whole movie, is that reveal. As much as it hurt my soul... Watching him take the glasses off as that smile goes across the face and his hands just goes like, it's as easy as that. Somebody take this stupid costume off me. <laughs> I, I couldn't, like, I was upset 
in my heart, while at the same time, just like, I had the biggest smile across my face. We're like, holy crap, he's so freaking good. And the greatest te- testament to his acting is that he made that horribly written scene <laughs> where it's like five minutes of straight, pure exposition. He made it funny. And it Un- was just like, so fun to watch. exposition, never in a million years, regardless of whatever heightened reality a movie is set up, do people ever talk like this and stand cheering and toasting a guy explaining to them exactly what they do. It's ridiculous. It's quite possibly the worst exposition in the entire MCU, but it is so fun because Jake Gyllenhaal is just going nuts with it. He, golly, he's, he's so much fun. Even as a villain, he's just, he's a lot of fun to watch. And like, after that, he still has a lot of great moments. Like, um, I feel like he channels Lou Bloom from uh, Nightcrawler <laughs> a little bit whenever he's talking to him and he's like, I just hope that after I have to kill Peter Parker, you know that his blood is on your hands. I'm like, holy crap, I'm getting that, like staring in the mirror and then breaking it from Nightcrawler. But like, you're on it now and it's freaking me out. Or he just casually threatens to shoot them all in the head with the drones. Yeah. And I was like, okay, yo, great meeting. And just there's the whole thing, just the whole Mysterio thing, I think is just kind of brilliant. You know, He's he's pretending to be a hero, and so he's he's kind of gathered all. It's essentially like a film crew or like an office, and I love like the thing about that scene where you know after the revelation he's doing all the toast. It's like I love how everybody they're all really normal looking people with like boring office names, yeah. like they're they're like characters from the office or office space or something. Like, and it's it's all it's all so just ridiculously mundane. Yeah. And it's like, you know, Janice from costume and you, you know, you wrote the script and you know, the, the guy with the computers. Like, it's like, it's like, all, it's, it's like, it's kind of playing on the whole film thing where he, I love he, he walks around in a mocap suit. Just, <laughs> I love that. It's so good. And they're, they're, you know, they're planning with the, with the previs and all the drones coming around and you know, throwing out generic lines. <laughs> I love this, the scene in the climax where he's like, where Fury calls for an update. He's like, hey, hey, I, I you know. <laughs> I need a, I need a line like you know, it's the elementals or they're disrupting the Earth's you know gravitation or whatever like <laughs> he's like having to be fed lines as he's pretending to fight it's like it's it's just so funny and so so well realized and <laughs> you're like yes Janice I still need the cape <laughs> it's it's self aware and not in the annoying kind of way like it it's fully aware of all of these kind of cliches and honestly like it makes watching his bits like especially the the action scene with them on the Ferris wheel like that much funnier in retrospect like whenever he's like what are you doing what I should have done last time it's like oh, that's such this a line this is for my that family is, yeah like this is this is lines on a script that he's reading and it I think it's it's really really funny also. I, I had this thought this most recent time. I wonder if audiences have changed since Iron Man 3 or if this just this was way more under the radar um, than Iron Man 3 was with the, the Mandarin reveal. But like with him, because, you know, they introduced the idea of the multiverse in the trailers. And I know I knew a lot of people where that's what they were most excited about. They're like, they, they did it. You know, he's from we're this has officially been labeled in canon as, as Earth 616. You know, like like the main uh, continuity from the comics. Like this is, this is it. Um, I think they just oh, forgot about it by the end of the film. <laughs> but like, what's like the movie pokes fun at the person for thinking that because he's like, we and who made up the story so ridiculous, which is apparently the exact the exact thing people are somehow able to fall for these days. 
Like it, yeah. it feels like a jab at the person for like expecting and wanting this thing, but like you know, in this case, people just kind of went with it. But I, I think it's really, I think it's smart. I, because I was one of the people who was like, oh man, the multiverse. This is where it gets intense. And then they just had that line of like, oh, screw you, movie. Like I'm actually laughing, and I think you did that well. But, uh, <laughs> but nice and, jab. And, and that's the great thing is that the conflict that the film is, you know, giving us for the first half is believable for this kind of movie. Like the whole the elementals, which I think are, they're pretty cool ideas. You know, you have the the fire demon. <laughs> There's a you know, air, water, earth, and fire. Only the Avatar can master all four <laughs> elements. But uh, <laughs> like. You have these really cool creatures like the water monster, the fire monster, the wind monster. Like, that's a really, it's a cool visual. Sandman vibes. Yeah, and I like that Spider Man is absolutely useless against these creatures. Like, none of his strengths have any, you know, any kind of um, applicability here, which, you know, makes it necessary. Why Mysterio is necessary. It's like, it's building up a real solid plot, but then, you know, making it all illusions and drones. I think it actually works pretty well. Like, it sounds ridiculous, but I think the execution, just the visual execution is solid enough to where you can buy it. Yeah. And I I think now we got to come to a, my, one of my issues with Mysterio. Like, I think the whole everything surrounding Edith was kind of a mistake, aside from the fact that Jake Gyllenhaal looks amazingly good in those glasses. That's true. I, he just puts them on. It's like, yep, they belong on your face, man. Like, did they design them for his face? <laughs> I don't know. But aside from that... I feel like the entire Edith thing is just, it makes Tony Stark look really stupid. It makes look Nick Fury look kind of stupid for giving it to Peter Parker. Like, just the, the whole thing is of Tony Stark create a bunch of killer drones for Peter. Why? And even how it works in the plot, like, um, is that Mysterio, he already has a bunch of drones, but he needs Edith so that he can have more drones. I just think it's 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 a very very weak MacGuffin that I think kind of undermines Tony by like making him look really dumb and irresponsible, which he kind of is. But I think Peter was one of the exceptions to that. And yeah, and I mean, thinking about where we are at this point, you know, we've we've already gone through civil war, and Tony is very different in post civil war MCU. Unless he made this, did he? Like, I guess he would have had to have made Edith. Before Infinity War. No, I don't think so because the I mean the name Edith, you know, even, even dead Dunn, on the, yeah. I think that that was like a because he did he, they did not expect anyone to come back, so he made the whole thing in like the forty eight hours of Endgame. Well, yeah, to me it, it feels like it was all of this wasn't really exactly made for Peter. It feels like all of this was just like what he already had access to, and he just quickly you know knowing tony he's probably able to just pump out ai as quickly as anything <laughs> probably just created one real quick and said hey everything i already have you're now in control of and you live in these sunglasses but i, I what i think would just be a stronger plot for mysterio is that is like just cut edith out of the film and i think if mysterio is just he's latching onto spider-man because he's you know the most visible well-known hero also, he's a kid, so he's super gullible, you know, available. And so he, by latching on to Spider-Man and you know, they're fighting battles together, he, you know, gains Spider-Man's respectability 
and you know, all of that fame and if Spider-Man trusts him, then we should trust him too. And then in the end, you know, he's still causing carnage. He's still killing people in his, his schemes, but it's about rather than just trying to steal the glass from Peter, it's about, you know, gaining, you know, gaining fame through Peter, then offing Peter and giving Peter a hero's death. And then he can take his place as early earth's mightiest defender. I think that would have just been a less convoluted plot for the character, which, which I think pretty much does the same thing, you know, for the personal arcs. Yeah. To me, like the MacGuffin should have been perception, you know, it, uh, that almost like superhero marketability kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And you could still have the scene between him and Peter in the bar where Peter's like, I'm going to quit. You be the hero. And, exactly. it, is- and that can work without those glasses. Like you're saying, because you know, Peter is in a state of not wanting to do this. Elect or uh, Mysterio is in a state of of wanting to, and honestly, I feel like it would have worked if there was almost just some sort of montage of them superheroing together. I guess that would have been really tricky with the logistics of it because everything he fought was obviously so curated for, curated for him. Which um, is another thing. I feel like the film never really tells us why is Peter so exhausted. Like, we literally open the film, like, I'm so tired. I just want a vacation. Like, kid, you've been sleeping for five years. <laughs> and, yeah. Like, and they, they even they had that action scene where he, you know, he takes down the crime family in the uh, in the restaurant that was in all the trailers that was cut out. Like, I feel like they needed a montage in the beginning of the film. You know, Peter Parker in an Earth without Iron Man trying really, really hard. You know, give us another five minutes in the beginning so then we, we can buy that he's exhausted. He just needs a break. And you know, because that's such an integral part of the film. Yeah, that's the, like his exhaustion doesn't sell his his overall desire to to not be like the main hero. I I guess it works fine enough um, if the motivation is just like, hey, I want to have fun with my friends. I'm tired of this. That works fine and it's believable because like that's exactly a teenager thing to do. But if that's what you go with, you don't get that airplane scene with with he and Happy because that that's not what results from that kind of motivation. So that scene needs the exhaustion to work. And so or, and, and that idea is pretty absent. So I, I, I do think the movie would work better if we had if we had more visibility of just him having to try to live up to the iron man legacy because like you know when he's on the roof and he looks at the iron man uh great visual yeah it looks amazing but like that's immediately following like this fundraising event like that moment that image should have followed you know him having to be the superhero you know living in or having to fill the shoes of iron man just Uh, barely winning yeah like that 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 should have been tough but it's you know it's after this fun funny little you know fundraising scene then going into that that just that the burden that that should have placed on him doesn't feel as real as it would have i think if we saw something else and so yeah i I think if the movie had a better idea of how to portray the struggle of like of living in Iron, or of having to live up to Iron Man's legacy, and it and under they would have made seeing the attractiveness of bowing out and allowing Mysterio to step in way more believable. And you don't need the glasses for that. You don't need this weird thing because his you know 
it, it's weird. You don't really think about where he gets his resources with that. Like, if Edith isn't in the picture, it's just like, okay, he's this guy. He came into money, blah, blah, blah. But, like, whenever you have his motivation be more resources, then that plants the idea of, like, well, where did he get what he already has? And why, is that, why isn't that quite enough? And now, yeah, there's, I think overall... Think certain decisions could have been made to to make this a lot less muddled uh, as it ended up being. How do you feel about uh, Skrull Fury? <laughs> uh, I think it's cool. I mean, I don't at all mind seeing Ben Mendelsohn again. Obviously, I'm a huge Talos fan. I think he's hilarious and Mendelsohn can do no wrong. I do think it does feel weird considering, like, what he was able to gather from Happy's message, and you're like, uh, "You got me." That li- that little scene with with he and and Hill and the rocket launcher, like that feels just quintessentially Nick Fury. And I don't know if I can buy all of that being Taylor's doing a Fury impression. I p- there's a part of me that wonders if they shot this entire film and realized that Nick Fury is kind of out of character. Like this is this is Nick Fury's kind of weird in this movie. Wait, what if he's a scroll? And like, kind of reworked that into it, like because Nick Fury is kind of strange. And like, you could just put that up to where he's saying, you know, uh, you know, he's been gone for five years, and now you know, I used to know everything, and now I know nothing, and you know, I'm low on resources, and he's like really desperate. But he's like, he's really angry and putting a, like putting a lot of pressure on a kid who really isn't up to it. Also. You know, Nick Fury is like a master manipulator. He knows exactly what to say to a person to make them do, to make them think they want to do what he wants them to do. Like that's that's that that is his thing, and he is just so bad at communicating to Peter that it makes sense that it's not it's not the real Nick Fury. See, I I felt the I felt the opposite because coming off of Captain Marvel and it's like just jokey demeanor there. Well, during this, I was like, okay, this is way more Nick Fury. Uh, because like, cause I, I really felt like his sense of frustration made complete sense within this character of where, like, he is, you know, he's used to all of these resources being able to accomplish all of this. And, and I think, you know, his frustration makes way more sense if it is Fury with, like, Peter ghosting him. Of him being like, you know, I'm, I am Nick Fury. I used to run this world. I like, I was involved in all of this, and now a high school kid is screening my calls. That that idea of his frustration and his uh, desperation only makes sense if it is Fury. Now that it's Talos, it's like I, I, I like, I kind of love the story if it's Talos who is just so out of his depth, like. I just need a superhero to come help me. So, oh, he's a kid. You can't get over here. Yeah, and. It, he, and I think also it's definitely really, funny, and it's not like movie breaking or anything. But and, I, and I, I, I was, don't, I don't think Fury would have ever been fooled by Mysterio. Like, I don't see the guy in the Avengers or Winter Soldier who made all you know all these plans. You know, why do you think we're in a cave? I noticed. Like, I don't, I don't see that guy falling for this goofy, you know, Boy Scout cheeky grin kind of guy. I mean, sure, but at the same time, like, there's just. I bought it completely because of the movie that it is. It does work well enough, in hindsight for me at least. I was thinking, like, Nick Fury is kind of weird, not a character. Like, That's, Yeah, I guess that is just weird because I, the, the reveal did the opposite for me because to me it feels... 
aside from like the the only the only I guess area of agreement there would be that like classic fury of the MCU probably wouldn't have fallen for this, but this world in Far From Home already just feels feels different and lighter and fluffier and like things just happen and like people know and fall for the things that they need to fall for for the plot to work in this that like that was enough to get me to buy it because just in terms of his demeanor and his personality and stuff my issue after the reveal was and it and it it was the issue held up on rewatch of thinking like this feels way too nick fury for this to be talos which i, I think is real for scrolls they talk about you know, they pick up their you know some of the personality and recent memories and all that like they do kind of become that person but also it did i i do think this was a pretty late in the game decision because kobe smolders was not uh-huh. even informed that she was a scroll until like the movie was in like almost finished with the edit but her performance is really weird like she's really cold and kind of rude to peter she's she, like she doesn't feel like maria hill either uh, again like i we haven't seen these people interact with like she's she's a shield agent who is used to like end of the world things and here's a high school student complaining about being taken from his field trip i i don't know i completely buy that this person who's used to what she is like as he's like bye ma'am she's like yep like she's i don't know based on just her line of work leaves very little time for his sympathies and you know like i just want to enjoy my vacation I, I do like reworking some of their lines. You know, that they direction you, you got me. Yep, like now it's a husband and wife, or the scene where they're, uh, you know, like, it only worked because I had serious doubts about it back from the beginning. Not true. He had zero doubts. Like Maria Hill would never undercut, uh, you know, fury like true. that. But, but a, mar- a married yeah. couple, maybe. <laughs> As a reveal, I think it's pulled off pretty well. It does, you know, create a lot of a whole lot of questions for the MCU that this film has no interest in answering. Uh, but yeah, so we'll see how that plays out. Like Nick Fury's on this giant uh, Skrull spaceship, I guess, and just relaxing. There's a lot of Skrull sleeper agents, sleeper agents around. I don't know, like, like what does this mean? Are they are they actually gonna touch on it again? Are they just gonna forget no, no, it ever I, happened? Uh, I remember reading quotes where Feige was even saying like, "We're kind of teasing it at what's next." There, um, they definitely. From everything I've read, they definitely have plans with with whatever that was that we see Fury doing. I wonder if they're going to play into the next Spider-Man movie. Like, Spider-Man and a bunch of Skrulls could be fun. I wonder if they've got some uh, spacey Fantastic Four stuff going on. So, uh, after being... Um, just to, to change the subject a bit, after being mostly absent um, from Homecoming, we see it in, in Infinity War, the, the spider sensors. This movie calls it the Peter Tingle. Um <laughs> It was cool to see that like fully incorporated into like into his powers and into the story. I think the scene of him in the hallway is probably the best action sequence of either Spider-Man films for me. Wait, which one? Um, whenever he relies on it, he's like, "Okay, oh, really? Peter Tingle." Because I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of that. <laughs> really, I, I, to me, that scene is. I find it absolute visual chaos with no real clarity or direction. Wow, I find the exact opposite. I like I I I adore the Mysterio nightmare in the you know the first Mysterio nightmare. I think is just like virtuoso filmmaking. But that I just I don't I just don't feel like Watts 
I don't think he's very good at just, you know putting giving you know a, a focus point in the action. Like we're following this in a sense of you know direction and rhythm to follow the action. I feel just, it was just like explosion of just CGI stuff that was like impossible to follow for me. I like the idea though. Weird. I I really really loved the way it was done. I thought it was done super well. Just and for me, it was part of that was what I felt like was was clarity where like the the moments of color was constantly pointing you to where to look at it was point like the hiding the geography and then the reveal of like he's running and we're not sure like okay where is he right now like any confusion to me felt intentional with those moments of here's where it is and i don't know like to me that was like easily the, the like i really like the nightmare kind of sequence it's very like the batman arkham games very reminiscent of there um I I, I'm not, I don't want to entirely bash it because I love the idea behind the sequence of you, you cannot trust your reality, so he literally has to close his eyes and fight and you know fighting within the reality and, and every time he kills a drone there's a little break like I love the idea I just don't it's kind of it's kind of like the, the strobe the strobe plane in Homecoming where like I like the idea but it just hurts my eyes hmm. so yeah to me it, it's just all I really like the way he presented the geography and the it felt everything felt tailored to point you in the direction and then hide it from you and then point you in the direction. And then I don't know. It was the closest uh, any of the Spider-Man movies to me have, have made it was, it was the best revealed of what like the spider sense is like, I guess for me of, of any of these sequences. And I, I really like that sequence. I don't know. Of, the spitball in Spider-Man one was pretty cool. <laughs> and that, that slow, that the fly sitting there. Uh, I I like the the uh, the dreamy sequence with Mysterio. I I think it's it's really cool. It only works so well for me because like that whole sequence is tailored for a TV screen and for me the viewer, and a lot of it doesn't make sense within the context of the scene. I mean, and it, it looks it looks super cool. But and also just because it's entirely CGI and fully removed, like it that one more than than the hallway one to me just felt like we're throwing stuff around. Like we're, it's just a series of really cool visuals. But uh, I don't know that like I I love both sequences. It's just of of all of the of all of the action sequences of, of either of the Spider Man films so far, that that hallway one is just is, is the one I, I I like by or the most by a good bit. Yeah, I guess aside from that car ride in Spider-Man Homecoming, I think this is probably the be- the the nightmare sequence in my opinion is the best bit of what of Watts's direction. I just I love how fluid it is. It just keep it just keeps going and going, just getting more and more trippy and I mean I it has to be terrifying beating it. and just the the way the way he interacts with the nightmares but also with reality like where he punches, you know, punches at it and hits the pillar. Oh, yeah. Or dives into a hole that just lands immediately on the on the floor, or he jumps out of the window and escapes the illusion, and then as he's falling, the the drones catch up with him and reinstate the illusion, or the way Mysterio kind of sets him up to to shoot web at him and then pull a crane onto himself, like it's just so tightly choreographed and just the, the visuals are just crazy and just pure nightmare fuel, and the entire time. Mysterio is just ripping at his soul because because he actually got to know the kid and I, th- and I think he genuinely liked Peter but now he's using all of that knowledge and that friendship 
to just stab exactly where he knows it hurts. You know, if you were good enough, Tony would still be alive. And and then the, the final moment, I think, is so brilliant where he pretends that Fury oh, shoots yeah. him to get him to tell tell you know, tell him about his friends and then reveals it again and just backs him into a train. Like That's an amazing fake out. Like what if like as a villain, it is it's such a fantastic like just concept for a villain who can can just completely control the environment and the hero like unless they're Spider-Man with a spider sense are completely helpless because he you, know, you only see what I want you to see. And I can literally walk you in front of a train and you would never know. Um like it's terrifying and I think it's really well realized. Yeah, I I feel like it's it's hard to feel fooled in a in a lot of like especially like a, a lot of like action films where like the villains are so clearly defined where you know you it it, it just it feels hard to have the rug pulled out from under you. But I feel like this movie is aware of that just to a very real degree to like that the the way that whole scene is played like by having I didn't believe that Fury had died but by having like um Agent Hill fade away and have him be like oh what you know what's going on like not fade him away and seemingly kill him and then the bit of like having Quentin shot and then immediately pulling out all the fakeness and having his body drop like that scene is played the, like if that scene if there were no twist that's exactly how that scene would be played like that's exactly the way it's all of that awesome fury moment yeah exactly like it just it feels so in line with with what we would expect from this that when the reveal happens like i remember thinking in the theater like wow you like you really got me that was that was really well done and i, I love that every single aspect of beck's interaction and his power is all comes back to just deception and how he can play people, just every everywhere you look, there's some kind of deception. Um, I think really playing into the theme of his character. Yeah. And are you either the one that's really bummed they killed him? I was sad that they. Yeah, you know, the MCU often kills villains, and you know it's kind of disappointing. But often they're not all that well developed, and most of them are just you know big scary guys to punch. I feel like this is a character that could just offer so much more, not only to Spider-Man but to you know pretty much any MCU character. Like he's is a, a seriously a force to be reckoned with, and he's Jake Gyllenhaal, and he's amazing. So exactly, I really I like. But the thing is, he doesn't have to be dead. You know, not all of the drones were Edith. He could have had his own drone there. But oh, that that final moment <laughs> or, of him. No, no, I know how you do it. I no, know. No. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, in the next movie, just say somehow Quentin Beck is still alive. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. I've died before. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the final moment of, you know, his dying monologue is just lining up Peter so he could you know, shoot him. And Peter's reaching out, just, you know, and seeing nothing but hearing the gunshot. Like, I think, you know, my issues with that hallway sequence aside, I think, you know, Watch does a lot of really amazing things with the concept. Um, that said, I do got to criticize Watts a little bit. I think the action is good fine like uh, between good and fine like it's never it's never boring there's always something cool and interesting happening i think you know his his grasp of humor with an action is really solid but uh, spider-man i think is one of the most visual visually dynamic you know action guys like when he's 
when he's doing his thing, when he's doing his web, you know, web slinging or whatever he's doing, he is so agile and there's so much motion, inherent motion and style to Spider-Man that I feel like the camera work is simply too pedestrian to really make, to do something with it. I feel like both Raimi and, uh, and, uh, and uh, well, Webb from The Amazing Spider-Man, I think both of them had a really good vision for how to shoot Spider-Man action. And they were very distinct from each other. Both both films, both series had their, a very distinct look about them. But when they were in action, I think they really used the camera and to to to, to the maximum to make Spider-Man look amazing and cool. Whereas that surprised I think, me with Webb considering, you know, he'd just come from indie comedies. But I yeah, I agree. He had a really cool... I think maybe even more than uh, more than Raimi, just the way he used uh, the physique of Spider-Man was just super cool. There was an intricacy to his action scenes that was incredible. Um, and but here Webb just kind of sets the camera. Yeah, he'll move the camera sometimes, but it's a lot of static or like slow panning shots. Like he doesn't really make the camera a, other than I think the dream sequence is like he doesn't make a, the camera a part of the action, and it just. I don't know if I would feel this way if we hadn't had five Spider-Man films before this, but I just think in both films, the action is, is solid, but just so much less than what we know it can be. There's just to me, like a lack of physicality to all of it. Like Mm -hmm. it feels, I don't know. Like it, it just, it feels weightless and CGI and except Venice, Venice had some really awesome wire work. And uh, but like, Tom Holland being like a dancer and like a really good athlete, like they were just some pretty cool things with him there when he had the mask off. But even that, like that, the action in that scene is so sparse. Like there's not, there's not a lot of just him moving around and being Spider-Man. And, mm-hmm. and like, even whenever what he's doing is cool, I th- I feel like the direction itself just the the way the action is staged in that and especially like the the scene with with them stuck in the ferris wheel that that scene feels just so generic to me where it's like you we've got your nice wide shot villain punches the ground and shoots out the lava stream from it like the the camera's not doing anything i'm i was really wanting to see like in in my head this last time i was imagining some like peter jackson Via, like during like the Hobbit kind of like camera panning down and follow like really style in a really stylized way following the lava cracks as it goes there. Just think about the like the way he shoots like some of the Dol Guldur stuff, bringing yeah. that level of like movement and and dynamic. I don't know. It's, it, it it was all very functional. And I feel like he doesn't quite know how to maintain that rhythm of action, that intensity and. Like, cause like every t- in that Ferris will scene in particular, you would have like crazy action, and then we just cut to like a static tripod shot of Ned and Betty, and then go back to the crazy action. Like, there's you there's a rhythm to action where you need to have like the camera work, even like in the action, also needs to maintain a level of energy when you have the cutaways. You like you need to have the shot either like panning around or kind of zooming into them, even if it's just Ned and Betty in you know, in the Ferris wheel, every time you cut to a static shot, all of the visual momentum that you've been building up with the other shots just ends. And it doesn't, it's, I don't know how to explain it, you know, just, you know, audibly, but you, you, there needs to be, the. You, I think the thing you have with guys like Spielberg or J.J. Abrams, where 
when they cut together their action sequences, the camera is just in constant motion. And every shot, even though even if it's cutting to a completely different, irrelevant thing, it like feels like it is continuing the same motion that it had in the previous shot. So it's just the whole thing feels like a dance, a smooth dance. Whereas here, it feels like a bit, you know, bits and pieces. Like whenever we cut back to, you know, the two teachers talking about Voltron and the Power Rangers is like, st- you know, stop static camera shot. There's the, the, the action is solid, but it doesn't have that, you know, constant energy, you know, to carry you through those great action sequences. My gold standard for that is the, the TIE fighter escape sequence from The Force Awakens, where like even whenever we go back into the TIE fighter, we're moving around them like we're circling the cockpit we're mm. like just with the the lights flashing on the faces you never whenever we go between just the uh the tie fighter you know just speeding around and you know the lasers chasing them and everything and then cutting back into it you never lose like what you're talking about you that that kind of that sense of visual momentum that's never gone there's like inventive angles on the inside the way like the way he plays with the flashing lights you you have that shot where the camera's literally just like moving around like circling them in the cockpit it's 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 still shot as if it's within an action scene and and in that scene like with them up on the ferris wheel it feels like you know these are probably all of this was done a good deal apart they're really just on this ferris wheel thing in front of a green screen and they're going to get all their lines and they may not even know what the action scene looks like in its you know in its final uh with, you know it may not have been staged or or whatever it's just it it feels it feels like two different scenes kind of mm. and i don't want to entirely rag on watch there are cool moments like the scene where he runs up the side of the building as the fire is like billowing behind him and jumps over the fire or a, there's like a long there's a really like extended bit of action where he's being chased around by like hundreds of drones and he like literally cannot stop or he will be riddled with bullets. And he's just flying, flipping around and around the bridge, laying these different traps. You take out a few drones at a time. And it's like a really actually kind of breathless, exhausting bit of filmmaking right there. But uh, overall, the action doesn't really, you know, isn't really up to that standard. I want him to with the, if he's going to be back for the next one, I want him to play around in New York more because I do like the way for those little moments that he shot him like swinging around the the buildings and stuff Mm -hmm. there. He captured like speed and just like the thrill of swinging in a way that I think is very distinct and different from what's come before. Um, I think a lot of that is just having that wind machine on Zendaya's hair, but like, that feels fast and that shot of him using like the the webbing between his arm and his torso like to like glide over everything it just it looks cool and fun and visually interesting Mm. um so maybe maybe if he's given like new york as a playground and the movie demands more of that kind of stuff from him maybe he can he can push himself what the other the the image of spider-man holding up the bridge of london side as a shield is like Iconic to me, at least for some reason. As is MJ with a mace, which is just adorable. Also, just something else that I really liked. I really liked the the red and black suit, um, which is obviously like going back to that original um, Amazing Spider-Man comic book suit, uh, uh-huh. which was like red and black and the the webbing on the arms and stuff. I think I've it got works that on my wall. Really well. That's a poster. I'm looking at Do it right I? now. So I've got that on my wall as a poster. Like ah, nice. The original cover to the original issue. Yeah, which 
which itself is iconic. I'm surprised we haven't seen that recreated like every other movie with these, just because of how like immediately recognizable it is. The the, the night monkey suit is pretty cool as well. I I love the night monkey suit a lot too. <laughs> it's it looks super cool. Uh, uh, that that reminds me of when he wakes up in jail. <laughs> I love it. The friendly Dutchman. <laughs> He's talking to his wife. Uh, She's pregnant. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and then you cut to the, the cops wearing the mask. As he's I just want to live there based solely on that. Um, yeah. But speaking of the suits, all one of my favorite scenes, it was probably the most like emotionally affecting scene for me. Just watching Happy as Peter is like playing with the holograms and getting his suit together. I love Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I love that. But like also as somebody who is super sad that like – after the Avengers, the like Tony, Tony's love of like classic rock just is never brought up again. You know, like it, they go, Shane Black goes for the more like psychedelic kind of sound for three, and then after that, there's no real distinct sound to him anymore. And for them to go back to ACDC here, like that in the theater brought me so much joy. That whole like. If, you you kind of recapture that magic and just the whatever whatever it is just about Iron Man one that feels so special you get that glimpse again here and it's it was such a, a great moment you know because they them selling this as like this is the end of Phase three not not End Game I think that. For like obviously with the idea of who's gonna take the mantle from Iron Man, obviously like the the themes of it make sense to include this within Phase Three, but just these these last little moments, this callback to and simply because you know Tony and Peter were so interconnected yeah. and vital to each yeah. other. Th- those little moments made selling this as the epilogue to the Infinity Saga work more for me. Mm. and i love that happy is still like the liaison to peter parker maybe he's just there for aunt may (laughs) but he's 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 there and he's going to make sure peter's taken care of which is really sweet yeah i think again a very rounded bit about way we've pretty well covered the film um you know back to tom holland i think he is simply fantastic in this role um you know i i think people are crazy when they say like, these are the best Spider-Man movies, but I, to- I can totally get like why someone would consider you know, this to be their definitive you know, version of the character. He's just so effortlessly charming and you know, charismatic and emotionally he needs to be, and he's funny. He's, he's, he's just perfect. He's yeah. great. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I don't think Watts is nearly as interesting a director as Raimi or even Webb, but there is a sense of charm to these movies and and just a sense of humor that is very different from either of the two iterations that have come before that I understand it being being somebody's favorite. I will argue against it being the best, tooth and nail. Um, <laughs> but I get why it just works for somebody in a way that the others may not have. All right, so let's move really quickly into a brief discussion on the film score. Uh, did you get a chance to listen to any of it, James? Uh, unfortunately, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> well... This this is by Michael Giacchino, of who I am a big, a very big fan. Uh, might, might even say super fan. Um, I don't like this. I I think I prefer his uh, Doctor Strange music to this. I think his Spider-Man scores are both really solid. Um, 
I'm a little underwhelmed by his actual Spider-Man theme. Like it's it's literally like these six repeating notes, and like they when they're like really heroic and set to action, they sound really cool. But again, it is just six notes, and I feel like it it can be adapted, but there's still so little variety in the music that's a little disappointing to me. Yeah, I that's the weirdest thing. You would you would have thought that like. Spider-Man and Giacchino to me just seems like a match made in heaven. Like, cause he, he creates such distinct themes to me and like, and immediately iconic and recognizable and big. Um, I still think his theme for Star Trek is like up there with the greats. Um, but this one, it, it feels, I mean, it might as well be like that, that main theme from Ant-Man. It's there. They're just, there's nothing that feels special about it. So it's like dun, 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 dun. Like, that's it <laughs> that's his theme um which I, I like i like it though uh but a couple of things yeah, I that's think- the thing like just to avoid sounding like a hypocrite i hum this a lot especially like after after rewatches i'm always going to hmm, 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 and, and then i'll be like oh wait i you know i, I always consider this pretty forgettable and yet i'm, I'm humming it like a couple days later uh-huh. but it's not bad by any stretch oh no and it plays really well in action and like when it's triumphant and heroic um i think uh mysterio's theme is also really cool it, it shows up in the world's worst water feature it's just like really heavy it's really very electronic sound which is kind of i love that even while he's he's heroic it's this very electronic sound kind of it's warning you that it's all you know it's all fake electronic holograms um, I think the the theme he has for the elementals is also really cool. Other other cool tracks. Um, Night Monkey knows how to do it. It opens with this really like awesome electric guitar riff on the Spider Man theme. Um, then you get the, like, this triumphant Mysterio theme that kind of is. You have the electronic music interlaced with you know the uh, orchestral score is pretty cool. My my favorite piece of music from the score is the the love theme between. Uh, between Peter and MJ, it shows up in a uh, personal hijinks and love and bridge and loves burning. Uh, it's just really sweet. It's got this like delicate piano music with some cello coming in out. It's just a, a pleasant, touching bit of music that I, I really like to listen to. Um, yeah, so it, it's a, it's a decent soundtrack, probably about in the middle for overall MCU for me. All right, I'm moving to our star rating and our ranking of our, our final ranking. The final time we have to say 25 films. Uh, uh, so what are your final thoughts for this film, James? And what do you get out of five stars? And how do you rank the MCU up till now? Uh, so I like it quite a bit. I think it's really fun. Um, I think the characters are really fun. It's, you know, each individual sequence, there's something to enjoy. It's consistently entertaining. Uh, I think there are moments in it that are just like laugh out loud, hilarious, even on like repeat viewings. You know, even after I know the joke, I still laugh as it's made. Um, and they're like, you know, with performances like Jake Gyllenhaal's in it, it's just there are things that really stand out. Uh, so out of five stars, I give it three and a half um, for my ranking. And this is tentative. Um, I won't be able to redo this on the podcast since this is the last. But this this is unlikely to remain it for me. It's just. So far, my final ranking for the MCU is number one, Winter Soldier, number two, The Avengers, number three, Infinity War, number four, Civil War, number five, Guardians of the Galaxy, number six, Iron Man, number seven, Homecoming, number eight, Iron Man 3, number nine, Thor, number 10, Captain America, the first Avenger, number 11, Endgame, 
Number 12, Thor Ragnarok. Number 13, Doctor Strange. Number 14, Age of Ultron. Number 15, Black Panther. Number 16, Ant-Man. Uh, number 17, uh, Iron Man 2. 18, Incredible Hulk. 19, Far From Home. 20, Captain Marvel. 21, Ant-Man and the Wasp. And 22, Thor The Dark World. Um, so yeah, I would echo a lot of what you said. It's, it's a very entertaining, pleasant film to watch. It's, it's very similar to the my thoughts on the Ant-Man films. Um, I think overall the filmmaking is pretty pedestrian. And the, the funny thing is, like, even I have all these problems with the themes and the dramatic art of the film, yet still, every time I watch it, even knowing the problems I have with it, I'm still, whenever it gets emotional, I get caught up with it. This, you know, it, when John Favreau telling Peter Parker that everything's going to be all right, just, you know, it, it's heartwarming. Like, it, it, it has all the good stuff in it, even if it doesn't fully mesh. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a fun little movie. Uh, so I also give it three and a half out of five stars. My ranking for the MCU up till now is number one, Captain America Civil War, two, The Avengers, three, Guardians of the Galaxy, four, Captain America the Winter Soldier, five, Avengers Infinity War, six, Avengers Endgame, seven, Iron Man, eight, Thor, nine, Age of Ultron, ten, Doctor Strange, eleven, Spider-Man Homecoming, twelve, Thor Ragnarok, thirteen, Ant-Man, fourteen, Iron Man 3, 15, The Incredible Hulk, 16, Spider-Man Far From Home, 17, Ant-Man of the Wasp, 18, Captain America the First Avenger, 19, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, 20, Black Panther, 21, Iron Man 2, 22, Thor the Dark World, and 23, Captain Marvel. I left out Guardians Volume 2. It's easy to do. Uh, <laughs> that would be, I don't know, bottom third somewhere towards the top of the bottom third. <laughs> All right. Uh, as far as the box office, um, domestically, this film earned $390 million and it earned Seven hundred forty-one million for a worldwide total of one billion one hundred thirty-one million, uh, which is about two hundred fifty million more worldwide than Homecoming made. Uh, not bad at all. It stands uh, at number nine in the MCU domestically and number eight worldwide. Uh, this is the first time that all M- all three MCU films in one year made over a billion apiece. I don't see that happening this year though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That that year was crazy for Disney. I think they. What was the final tally? Like seven, like between seven and nine films for Disney made over a billion, including this one, which was a technically a Sony film, but still produced by Disney, you know, co-production. Just that last year was just bonkers as far as box office. And it's not going to happen again for a while. As far as the critical reception, it earned, it holds a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 69 on Metacritic. And the, the audience ratings are even higher on both sites. I feel like the rea- the initial reaction to this film was really positive. And everyone likes the MCU, but this one in particular, like, I feel like both this and and Homecoming really made people happy out of the gate. Um, may, like, did did you feel like people might even like this one even more than Homecoming? I saw so I both movies, both this and Homecoming, were like huge out of the gate. I think Homecoming has already made it clear that it has more staying power. Like I remember seeing lists, numerous opinions being shared that this had somehow become the best Spider-Man movie yet, despite how absurd that is. <laughs> like, it's good, but it's not even close to the best. You know, everybody can have their opinions, but come on. <laughs> well, I'd, man, we got to find out how to, you know, how realistic it is to allow everybody to have opinions. But yeah, I this one, I, I saw like just effusive praise for this initially. Um, and I, I, I feel like a lot of that has died down since. Where it's weird, you'd still... Perception-wise, it still feels like Endgame was the last thing. And obviously, it's because it was Endgame. It was this huge, huge deal. 
but Far From Home feels almost entirely absent from any from even from conversations conversations where it would normally be relevant in. I don't know. I just there's a lot of twi- Twitter hipsters hating on it. Um, with there, the like hate on everything. But <laughs> the thing is, that's the biggest. That's the most you'll really see it because even people who really like it, it just I don't know. And maybe it's just you know I'm a, I'm a single I'm I'm one person who obviously has a limited view, but in, in my interactions I I just haven't seen I don't know I I've seen a lot more probably even homecoming conversation than I than I do with this it just seems to have come out and people really loved it so, something I think has been like being a Star Wars fan I already knew this but. <laughs> I think there's just kind of a, a really irritating aspect of fan culture with these films. Because um, when Homecoming first came out, we're like, yes, this is the Spider-Man we always wanted. Those other films, they don't count. And then you have the other aspect, you know, the other half of the crowd's like, oh my gosh, it's just MCU trash. They ruin everything. You know, why, this is a Spider-Man movie. Why is Iron Man in it? Should be Iron Man Jr. I'm so clever. Uh, and That is super clever. Yeah, and like there's 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 a whole contingent like they don't like the, the way Marvel's you know taking the character and kind of attached him on Iron Man like no Spider Man should be his own thing, and they just keep complaining about why is Iron Man in these stories and also like, I, one thing that baffles me is all the people that are saying like this Spider Man doesn't you know he doesn't work I don't understand the character's motivation without Uncle Ben like the character can't exist without Uncle Ben, and these are the same people that when uh, Martin Sheen got shot just screamed to the high heavens, why do we have to see Uncle Ben die again? And now they're complaining that we need to see Uncle Ben again. Do you remember when that happened? Oh, yeah. Like, I hate people, James. Like, people are, they're horrible. We should, uh, humanity's had a good run. Can we stop now? Um, Yeah, so like, there's there's a lot of, I think, just really stupid, shallow, nitpicky fan criticism going around this particular and like you know we you know we have our issues with it and it's definitely not perfect but i feel like just the, the the things that fandom latches onto and like they assign utmost importance to one moment and then the next moment they they, they you know we they don't want to see it i just i don't know we're finicky we're pathetic is that about, about wrapping up james <laughs> i'm tired <laughs> um but like, as far as like, it's hard to tell. Like, because I think you know the world did kind of cry out in terror when the MCU lost Spider Man. So a lot of people still love this version of the character. I'm I'm really curious to see what his legacy will be because I feel like so most of the other MCU characters have a really secure legacy. I feel like this this character, like say the third film comes out and it's really bad, I feel like that could forever taint, you know, how people view this character. And it could be viewed like the whole thing could be viewed as a misfire. If like the if it, or if the third one comes out, it's great. Then this could be forever the best one. Like I feel like the the kind of the consensus and legacy of this character is still kind of in flux. Yeah it it is in a, a weird place. Like all of Spider Man's at a weird place. You know, with Vulture maybe somehow in Morbius, and I I do wonder like ten years from now, what is Far From Home's place going to be? in whatever the Spider-Man cinematic universe looks like. You know what? Actually, just for fun, I, I just got to get some context. How would you rank the seven Spider-Man films we have to, up till now? Is it seven, right? Uh, Yeah, I think it is. There's the three Raimis, the two Mark Webb, that's five, then the, these two. 
or eight? Um, eight if we count Spider Verse. Yeah. So how how do you rank those films? Just kind of for context. Okay. Uh, I go number one, Spider Man two. Number two, Spider Man one. Uh, number three, Into the Spider Verse. Number four, Homecoming. Number five, The Amazing Spider Man. Uh, number six, Far From Home. Number seven, uh, Spider-Man 3. And number eight, uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Okay, that's mine exactly, except for I would switch Spider-Man 2 with Spider-Man 1. Those two movies are virtually flawless to me, so yeah. order is less relevant. I think I just prefer the action uh, of two more. Like, the train sequence with Doc Ock is, like, god tier. Yeah, that's pretty much my ranking as well. All right, uh, so that was our review of Spider-Man Far From Home. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, again, I'd ask you to please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Um, you can like us on Facebook as Franchise City Podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at FranchisePod. And you can find all our other episodes at FranchiseCityPodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm there as J.L. Hamry. Uh, it's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. You can also join us over on Facebook at the Outer Rim of Star Wars group. Uh, we are right in the middle of season seven of the Clone Wars being released. I, it just my heart so good to see the outpouring of love for this show online. Like I am just seeing just nonstop out of their mind love from people, um, and that makes me so happy. So if you feel the same and you're wanting to talk about it, definitely join us over there. Um, so it's, uh, me, you can also find me on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. You can follow me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. And I also have a YouTube channel called Green Rio One, where I put up these movie-based music videos. All right. So, James, we are done with the MCU. How does it feel to be a free man? Mm. Breathe the free air again. So, for the future, uh, we're done with the MCU. Uh, I think we're, we're going to spend a couple weeks just kind of catching up because in the six months we were in the MCU, a lot, you know, a lot has happened as far as the series. You know, there's been another Man of Black film. There's been another Toy Story film. Uh, there's been a lot of Star Wars content. First, we're going to jump over to Toy Story. Uh, two things. we for, I've totally forgot about the two Toy Story specials. So I think next week we're just going to cover the, the two Toy Story specials, uh, Toy Story of Terror and uh, Toy Story That Time Forgot, which are at least like two completely forgotten uh, you know, half hour specials that they put out, Pixar put out on ABC. So we're going to cover those next week and then we're going to go to Toy Story 4. Then I think Men in Black International. And then at some point, I don't know if it'll be immediately, but we still have to cover the first season of Mandalorian, season two of Resistance, The Rise of Skywalker came out. Uh, yeah, so it'll be a little bit before we start a new series. We got to play catch up for a bit. Yeah, it is weird <laughs> just because of how long running this was. It's amazing of how many like Okay, that's we have done this series. Oh, and we've done that. And here's something relevant. Between the things that have like released that's relevant, as well as the things that have announced that have been relevant since we started Iron Man 1. It's, it's a lot. So until next time, we will see you in the shorts. Bitch, please. You've been to space. <laughs> <laughs>